as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Aaron Odman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, fans. Thanks for having me. So you're in North Carolina, and you have a rather odd job right now, considering what's going on with coronavirus. You are a part of an education startup that prints posters that allows uh, teachers to be able to uh, get kids all kinds of ideas. Only teachers and students are not in the classroom right now. So what is going on in your world right now, Aaron? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a very good setup. Uh, you know, so right now I lead a company called PSS, and like you said, we um, we make tools for students uh, and teachers. You know, our our purpose is to create meaningful and effective learning experiences for students and teachers, and so all of our products do that. Our main one, which you mentioned, is a poster printing system, uh, and teachers do rely heavily um, on posters to set their classroom environment. Right. And, you, you know, you, you kind of alluded to the classroom is located in a building uh, with four walls and they've got tools. They've got the walls that they use to, to help teach lessons and uh, other other tools in that classroom. And yet they currently aren't in in the classrooms. They're on Zoom. They're doing, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're basically doing what we're doing right now, um, using technology to communicate. So. Um, you know, we are, we are really close um, with our schools and our teachers were in over 2000 schools in the U.S. And, um, you know, th- this is a very challenging time for teachers, right? Uh, our, our mission is to partner with them in their, in their hard journey. So we're pivoting like a lot of companies are doing to serve their customers right where they are. You know, our stance isn't, well, we can only serve you in this one circumstance if you behave exactly like we all behaved, you know, prior to March 1st. Um, so some of the things we're doing, our, our posters, which have educational content on them, uh, we, we can digitize those. So we're doing that so that teachers can still use that same content, but now they could use it on Zoom. And, you know, quite honestly, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, coronavirus and COVID-19 isn't changing uh, business. It's just, it's an accelerant. It's accelerating things that would have happened anyway. So in a lot of ways for our company, um, uh, you know, while we obviously are all very cautious and watching where the virus goes, we are, we're taking that cue from our customers and, and fast forwarding and pulling technology in to help them. So you have an interesting view on education right now because you're providing a business service for them. And I think right now people are thinking about education in ways they had never thought about it before. So you have the parents that are sitting there pulling their hair out because they're trying to get work done and they also have to educate their kids. And then you also have some parents that are like, hey, my kid was always getting in trouble in school, but now that I can do more hands-on learning, that I can pay attention to what their needs are, like they're doing really, really well maybe my teacher was just a crappy teacher or maybe that situation wasn't right. Like, so you must be hearing this from all angles, but talking to a lot of teachers, what's your take on what's going on uh, in the land of teaching now that coronavirus is going on? Yeah, we're, we're hearing a lot of that feedback uh, among other feedback as well. Um, You know, so, so I I think we've got to explore the fact that the classroom environment, um, is a powerful one and it's it's one that has a place in society right I, I don't think most of us either in education or serving education would co-sign to the fact that every student 
should now just stay home and learn via Zoom and the internet. Um, at the same time, we've got to be honest enough and courageous enough to recognize that that environment, which is really great for some students, has limitations. And so you're right, there are some students that have come alive. I've heard stories of students who didn't get great grades, they weren't really engaged in the classroom, and they're now top performers because they're learning from home, they're kind of learning at their own pace. And so it's forcing educators uh, to do what they, what, they, what they were doing anyway and always have wanted to do, which is to individualize education. That's the big um, theme, and in, in, it's been the big theme in education for the last few years. But again, being an accelerant, now we really get to dig into individualization and say, look, some students probably shouldn't be sent back to the classroom environment, at least not on a full-time basis, because there are things about that environment that just constrain their, their natural potential. And then there are some students who were really great in the classroom environment, but are struggling now, um, you know, because uh, they're kind of, they have to be a bit more self-directed and they're leaning a bit more on the resources at home. So I think we'll, I think hopefully we'll be courageous enough to see a good mix uh, as we return back to school. So you're a guy that has a degree from Harvard, right? So you had to have known how to um, navigate the game better than almost everyone else in the world. <laughs> did you do well in the classroom setting? I did. Yeah, I, I did well in the classroom setting. I took to it. Um, you know, I, was, I probably fall in that bucket of, of, of students that, uh, that needed that, um, that environment or where it just kind of fit my learning uh, modality, which I think we're all programmed uh, to learn in different ways and different modes. So the classroom environment always did suit me, um, suit me pretty well. Uh, what, I, what I would say is, is I had um, a resource that um, a lot of kids have, but not enough kids have, and that's, I also had very supportive parents who were engaged in my education. So it was really a one-two punch, right? The classroom environment so it gave a lot of resources, obviously a lot of lessons, but then my parents always set the tone. So even kind of our, our previous discussion a few minutes ago, where we see some kids thriving uh, in this kind of remote learning environment and some kids not thriving is a third party there there's a, there's a student there's a teacher but the third party are those home educators and they, they play a huge role and they, they played a huge role for me so you were at one point in banking before you got into education so it seems like um you know a winding path that you would be running uh, you know an education program whereas before you were at a startup for banks trying to get them more online. How, how in the world did this transition happen? Um, you, you know, it happened, it happened pretty, nat pretty naturally. I know this industries seem pretty far apart, but the underlying theme behind those two um, is that in both what I'm doing currently in education at PSS and what I was doing previously at Encino with banking and financial services is we were trying to bring tools and technology to the people in the trenches of those industries. Um, so, you know, no one would look at me and say, well, you were, you know, you were a financial services wizard. You, you know, you understood, you know, lending and credit and financial needs. And uh, at the same time, no one would say, you're an educational genius. You, you understand, you know, the 
the tough elements of how to educate a society. I don't claim to be a domain expert in any of those. You know, my domain is technology and change management, which those things, uh, you know, those two things are kind of ubiquitous and really industry agnostic. Although I, I, I deeply care about both of those industries. This has got to um, be your Christmas then, man, because like there is no time when people have been like, we're going digital and all the people that were lagging behind or so in the ag world, which I spend a lot of time in agriculture. One of the big things that you heard all the time was, Hey, I would let you guys move this system to be an online where, where farmer Joe could just buy online, but he really needs somebody there and you got to be there and, you know, import the data. He's never going to want to do that. Well, when coronavirus hit and all of a sudden those salespeople couldn't go out, Turns out Farmer John did know how to use the internet. He did know how to order things online and he didn't need that salesman. Yep. That's, that's one. I mean, that line that you said, Farmer John doesn't want to do it. Uh, you know, there's so that line has so many cousins and you know, the parents of that thinking are really, it's always been done this way. Right. And that's said in every industry. It was said uh, to me a lot in the military um, it, it was said to me a ton in banking, you know, when we were taking banks, community banks, regional banks, and really the, the largest banks in the U.S., we were taking them online. We were taking customer data into the cloud and encouraging our lenders to um, put online applications, put mobile loan applications out there. Um, and they said, well, you know, I, you know, a lot of my population or we, we, we worked with ag lenders are actually some of my favorites. But, you know, our, our lenders just don't want to do it. They're not tech savvy, which, you know, in the ag space, like that's got to be one of the most tech savvy industries with what, with what they're doing with harvesting and, and yields and those sorts of things. So we always just leaned in and said, well, that, yeah, that may be true. You know your customer well. I'm not going to pretend you don't. But I've got a feeling your customer orders things on Amazon, right? The numbers just kind of bear that out. I've got a feeling that your customer keeps in touch with their family, you know, via FaceTime or, or Zoom or what have you. And we just lean into it. It's, it's, it's always a slow slog until it's not, all right? I'm this big proponent of the power rule versus kind of the bell curve where things kind of bell curve, things happen really predictably and you can model them out and they're linear. And, and, and actually that doesn't really represent real life real life is more dominated by the 80 20 rule right the power curve which is um, things happen really slowly uh, at first and then they unfold much faster than you ever thought they could yeah i'm totally uh swept up by the idea of a pareto distribution that in any given uh group of people 20 percent of the people are doing 80 percent of the work or whatever your strat you know you're getting 80% of your business through 20% of your clients. It's one of those things that once you see that out in the world, you can't help but see Pareto distributions everywhere. And bell curves, yeah. you see those, but only when we're saying, all right, let's pick a median and then make sure that everybody fits on both sides of that, of that curve. Whereas a Pareto distribution, it doesn't matter whether you're playing hockey or you're selling stocks or whatever. There's always going to be a few people that get shots on goal way more than everybody else. And then the, and technology only amplifies that e enormously. That's right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Is it, you know, I, I think about this principle a lot because when it kind of hit me in the head, um, you see it everywhere, right? A, um, 
that, that, that bell curve, that distribution is really forced. It's rather artificial. Uh, it describes a very few naturally occurring phenomena. Um, and I, I think about it a lot too, especially someone with young kids, because I, I think about the ideas that we hold or the ideas that we miss. And those are one of the big, powerful ideas that I, you know, want to ensure my kids understand, which is, um, you know, there's a lot of rules in this life that we didn't, that we didn't make or create or can influence, but just take a hold of this phenomena and observe it unfold. Um, and ultimately, you know, use it, use it for good. Um, and don't, don't try to fight it, uh, you know, because it's this, it's this tidal wave that just kind of moves the world. There was something going on when I was coming up through school where there was a real push away from things like understanding statistics. And like, so I don't know where you come off on this, but as I've looked into things like IQ, they do actually fall into a bell distribution, right? Like you could argue about how valid is the IQ test or what does it actually measure? But if you go give that test over time, you will see half of the people fall below whatever 100 IQ and half of the people go above and it kind of goes out in a distribution. I had been convinced that that was actually not real. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s when people started explaining to me Pareto distributions, normal distributions that you start being like, wait a second, there are things out there that we can detect and they happen over and over and over and over again. Once you just somebody shown you the math, it's plain as day. Why, why do you think people weren't teaching this for a while? You know, I, th I think because it's, I think because it's not a naturally, so it is naturally occurring. Um, I, there's some evidence that that points to the fact that, you know, just our brains from an evolution standpoint can't uh, comprehend, you know, it's hard for us to comprehend infinity, right? So it's very hard to comprehend um, a phenomena is really as violent or seemingly unfair as Pareto's principle. And in some ways, you could argue, man, that's real. That's unfair. That's unfair to think that, you know, 20% of the population holds 80% of the wealth. And, and we can have those debates um, and, and, and we should, right? Um, but unfairness doesn't equate to it being untrue. Um, and so you're right. The bell curve is useful in things like IQ. It's also useful in things like height and weight, like there aren't people that are 20 feet tall, right? There's, there's an average height for a male and there's an average height for a female and everyone falls within, you know, one or two standard deviations um, for those things. Uh, but, but what we can't do is then take that observation and that framework and apply it to the rest of the rest of real life. Um, what it'll cause, it'll, it'll change your behavior and your outlook and really cause, I think, a lot of pain and anxiety when you observe a world that, oh man, that just doesn't, you know, I understand the bell curve, but this, this phenomenon doesn't fit into it. Why is this happening? Um, I, I think that's kind of part of the reason, you know, why, why it isn't taught and really hammered, hammered home because in some ways Pareto's principle is violent. It is unfair. Um, you know, it just, it doesn't feel right or, or natural, but, um, but, but I think it is. Yeah, you know, as you're describing this, I'm actually feeling a sense of relief from a, a form of resentment that I've had for a long time. Because once I started to realize, like, wait a second, there are some natural laws, 
it did cause me to look at the world differently. And before I was in my 30s, it was probably good for me not to be evaluating, are you above the median IQ? Like, are you below it? Like, it's better for me. I, I can see why when you start internalizing too much of those power laws that you start saying, well, the world has to be this way and you stop looking for, for the nuance. That's really, that's uh, insightful. I, so you mentioned that you were in the military man, your path keeps getting weirder and weirder. At what point did you go into the military? Why, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, it was, you know, it started as a childhood dream. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of uh, a corny story, but, um, you know, my uncles uh, were in the military and um, I looked up to them and uh, they were in the air force. And so we were always around air force bases and planes and air shows and I said, you know, I want to fly for the military. So it was really like an early sense of adventure for me. And so after high school, um, you know, I, I applied to the branches of the military that had airplanes, uh, had a lot of them, like the Air Force and actually the Navy and Marine Corps, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive, but they have as many planes as the Air Force does. And um, ended up going to the Naval Academy, which which was a blessing. Um, and... Uh, was a Marine, uh, Marine Corps uh, pilot after that. I was lucky enough to be uh, selected to do that um, and really just had nine years of adventure. I didn't think about bell curves or power laws, you know, to your point, like kind of you reflect on your 20s and, um, you know, just, just had, a sense, uh, had a sense of adventure, had a sense of camaraderie. Um, got to see a lot of the world's deserts, um, you know, which you wouldn't, you wouldn't naturally go to, which is good. I got out of my, my system in my twenties and I could go see cooler places, uh, as I age in life. So, um, yeah, they, I think from an industry standpoint, like it doesn't seem to hang together, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel unnatural or jarring to me, you know, cause there've just kind of been these steady tenets of, of technology, you know, people say we're living in the fourth industrial revolution, right? Where the digital age is going to change everything. And we saw that in the military, you know, I got to fly a plane, you know, that was basically a transformer, you know, it's a V-22 Osprey, which is half helicopter, half twin aircraft. <laughs> and, and I, I heard the same thing in, you know, being, you know, 23, I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Uh, I want to do that thing. Right. But the same thing you talked about, in your world, in, in ag lending, and I saw in banking, where ah, we don't, we always did it this way. I mean, that aircraft was actually a pariah. It was rejected uh, by the legacy warfighters um, in, in all branches of the military. This thing will never work. Uh, you know, we don't really need it. We've got all these other tools and aircraft we've been using, not looking, you know, ahead into the future and embracing that. So that was actually my first encounter with okay the inertia of status quo here's a transformational technology and that was the first time i saw everyone that was a naysayer flip in a year or two as we took that aircraft into the battle space and we really shrunk the battle space because you could land as a helicopter is very versatile but then you're flying three times as fast as a helicopter so there were generals who are are on record <laughs> um, and published saying this thing will never work, we don't need it, it's too difficult. Two or three years later saying, you know, my success was due to having this aircraft in the battle space. 
What, what is that like to be flying? Uh, I mean, like in the military, you think, hey, everybody gets along. Everybody likes those planes and those planes just go shoot somebody else. But to think about like the plane, the, the actual equipment being rejected, having that at somebody's fingertips and they say, nah, I don't, I don't want to use that. Is that what was going on when you first started? Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what was going on. I mean, it, you know, that aircraft uh, is transformational and it had a long run up. It had a long um, research and development history. And some of it, you know, is tragic and, and difficult, you know, when you're trying to do transformational things that tends to happen. And so, you know, we had some tragic accidents as we spent 10 years developing this aircraft um, while the rest of the military was being prepared for whatever came our nation's way. So they're kind of looking back, like, what are these, what are these guys doing? They're not up here in the front lines helping us. They're back there playing with this toy. Um, but, you know, just like every industry, like, there'll, there'll be these innovators that um, just kind of get this conviction and say, no, no, remember, our goals are all aligned. I care about the same things you do protecting this country. But this is how I express, you know, my love for the country and for our, our, our Marine Corps is by pouring ourselves into this technology because five, 10 years from now, we're all going to say, Oh, we could have, uh, you know, we can't live without it. And history is, is generally on the innovator side. Um, history always shows those things that were very weird or niche or ahead of its time. Um, until you look back and you say, Oh yeah, the cost is worth it. You know, it's ubiquitous. I can't live without it from the fridge to the car. I mean, these are like, these are really novel, fairly boring items that are non-controversial for the most part that, you know, 110 years ago, Henry Ford and the Model T, you know, were, were a joke in the business press. But there's a big difference between the Model T and the refrigerator where it's like, all right, you know, we can measure whether it gets cold or not, um, or whether it keeps the, the cars moving at 35 miles an hour. But you're getting into a hella jet <laughs> that has never been proven. And you're like, all right, I'm going to get in here. When you sit down to start playing with this toy before it's an accepted tool, are you realizing, hey, every time I, I sit down in here, I'm, I'm, I, may, I may not walk out of this plane. I don't, I don't know a polite way to ask that. Yeah, yeah, you, cer you certainly do, right? So, you know, the sense of adventure kind of takes you through it. Um, you, you know, it's, uh, we never looked back at it and said, oh, oh we're courageous or risk takers. Actually, I think entrepreneur, entrepreneurs um, and innovators tend to, tend to be very conscious. They're the most conscious of the risks involved. And yeah, that was, that was certainly um, way, way, way far back in our minds. But again, you're, you're kind of driven by this, um, you know, by this love, by this passion to improve. And, you know, we, we all know that the value um, and the importance of a higher cause. And so, you, you know, that sits in front of any kind of calculus of, like, you know, a, a personal harm or personal loss. You know, I, I was a guy wasn't doing anywhere near what you were doing, but I was on my own adventures running around in the Peace Corps and I was decking on a ship and, and did some weird things. And to me, getting older has made it so I'm perfectly comfortable during coronavirus. It's been nice to be at home for two months and to spend a bunch of time with my pregnant wife. And I mean, there's downsides yeah. to it, but really some big upsides. 
But I think about the life of a pilot, right? Like a, 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 a military going into combat, flying your hella jet. Like this seems like a really hard ride to get off of. Why did you ever get off that ride? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations to, to you and your family. <laughs> yes. That's, that's going to be awesome. Um, all parents welcome more more parents. To the, I've noticed uh, that every time journey. I tell somebody, they get a big smile on their face and they're like, you don't know what you're in for, but you're in for a ride. Yeah. Part of the smile is, is, is a bit out of villainous. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just wait. But, but, but babies are, babies are awesome. You know, babies are undefeated. Everyone loves babies. Um, <laughs> um, in terms of uh, getting off that wild ride, it, it actually does. It, it, it a lot has to do with family. Um, and I kind of just felt a natural, um, chapter, you know, come to an end where, you know, I first fell in love with aviation when I was nine. Um, I got out of the military, you know, at 29, uh, I got to do, you know, what I wanted to, to, to do and live my dream for nine years. And, um, you know, I, I met my wife and, you know, we, we together kind of shared a vision for what our, our family, um, you know, life would be like, and my hat's off and I've got a ton of respect for, you know, um, you know, my, my brothers and sisters in arms who are still in with families and making that work. Quite honestly, that's, I think, harder than going to combat uh, or harder than, you know, hopping in tanks or planes is, you know, keeping that, that, that part of your life is balancing those two. Um, so for me, it just, it just felt like a natural um, a natural close to that chapter. Um, you know, there's, there's always kind of the tactical things like, you know, in the military, um, your initial commitment as a pilot is about nine or 10 years. And if you stay beyond that, you, um, you transition into a bit more of management, middle management on a road to executive management. And, um, you know, so there's a little less flying there and it's a commitment that the military asks you to make. And I actually think it's, it's the way it should be. Um, that, you know, just right there around that nine or 10 mark, you know, if you're going to make a career of it, you kind of double down for another nine or 10 years. And so, you know, there's a lot of things where the military actually does give you space and say, hey, it's been a while ride. You've served your time. Um, you know, I, I had my commanding general. Um, I got to fly with him in the last few months that I was in. And I was nervous to tell him that I was applying to grad school and getting out, you know, because we call the Marine Corps, the gun club, like, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're one of us or you're not. And, you know, he, someone told him and he said, Hey man, I heard you, you know, you're applying to grad schools. And I was like, uh, yes, sir. Yep. Uh, that, that's what I hear. And, uh, he said, man, we need good Marines in the Marine Corps. Uh, and we need good Marines out of the Marine Corps. So anything I could do to help you write your letter of recommendation. And that, that kind of was like, that put me at ease and was, was you know kind of the start of some good closure where I said yeah we you know we do need good veterans uh, out of the service as well. So you're at this weird junction where you are pushing the edges of innovation. You, you've gone into banking and pushed the edges. You're going into education. But as you look back and you see the innovation going on in the military, you see like the rise of drones and the separation between the person pulling the trigger being hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away. What do you think as a, as a person that's been in combat, what, how should we as regular citizens think about drone combat? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's coming. I mean, it's already here, and um, you know, the military is, is is really leaning into it. It's it's almost futuristic and and Star Wars like. Um, you know, our fighting forces, our military, we've got some core values that extend all the way back to you know the ancient Romans and you know the warriors um, of of history, and those values. Those will, those will be the things that are consistent. So I think, you know, for folks like me, too, that aren't in, in the military anymore and are kind of watching and supporting our military forces, I think we should, you know, make sure that um, the military sticks to those values that are kind of ubiquitous, that are timeless, even I would say. And the modality, the, you know, the weapon, the way warfare looks has always been evolving. Um, and so it's going to it's going to continue to do so, but but our values to be the things that we that we cling to and will help us orient around this new world, um, and it'll it'll present new challenges, new opportunities. But but that that's kind of how I look at it. Are we sticking to those core values? Yeah, I mean it's like a very weird thing because on the one hand who would advocate like, Hey, I want to put more people up in the air so that when they're shooting at somebody else, they can be shot at like, Hey, if we've got an advantage, let's take it. But on the other hand, it's this very surreal, like almost like playing a video game and, and the amount of force you can exert on somebody far, far away with virtually no consequences coming back at you, at least in the short term, it's a bizarre thing for, for regular civilians to take in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think of it like, you know, the term moral hazard was thrown around, you know, in 2008, 2009 with the financial crisis, right? It's that it's that skin in the game conversation, right? If you can make loans or do financial products and have no repercussions, um, that'll tend to that'll tend to shape your behavior <laughs> and you'll behave differently and sometimes uh, in adverse ways. And so I think that's what you're hitting on, which is. You know, if you have to be on the battlefield and be up close to an adversary, um, you know, you, you're going to have um, you, you have elements of fear and courage, but you also have respect for that other human life as much as your own and, you know, the people that you're fighting with. Um, and that'll drive your behavior. So that's really what I was alluding to with the values. So because we have drones um, and, you know, maybe our citizens, our fighting force is still here in the U.S., how does that drive public policy and public sentiment? Does that mean that, you know, the executive branch and the Congress are going to be more willing to go into and use force um, in times when they probably wouldn't because those are their constituents that you have to physically ship to a battle space? Um, you know, those are the kind of things that would worry me if they start to develop. And that's why I say we, gotta, we still have to cling to those, you know, those core values of when to use force, how to use force, how to rebuild, um, you know, how to really win the peace, those, those, those sorts of things. But, but we're going to have to answer all of those, right? New technology forces us to answer all of those moral, moral questions. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, precisely what we're going through right now with coronavirus is, is going to force us to uh, address, like, how do we want kids to, to be spending their time during the day? In the past, it was, it was just automatic. It was, well, you go to school at 8 o'clock and you have a snack time at 10 and lunch and then recess. That's all out the window, and now we get to decide which way do we want to do it. As you look at your kids and their future, 
what do you hope gets added into the educational experience that maybe wasn't wasn't easy to to do before coronavirus? Yeah, yeah, that's that. There's a lot there that I think about. Um, my wife and I are um, we homeschool, so we we think um, you know deeply about like the learning environment. Oh, you homeschooled before this all began. I did, I did. Yeah, so like every when everyone was joining us in homeschooling, and we were like, "Welcome aboard." Um, you know, it's it's a it's a blast. Um, and in homeschool, we talk about homeschool versus schooling outside the home and in public schools. And I actually believe in both. I think there's a, a role and a place for both. Oftentimes, these ideas are pitted against each other in this zero sum uh, conversation, which I I don't I don't believe in. Um, so there's a role for both. And actually, I, I think our kids will end up doing both. I think they'll be homeschooled for part of their schooling, and they'll be they'll be in a school outside the home um, for, for part of their education. Um, but but I, I bring up you know our our kind of viewpoints about um, homeschooling because it, it it kind of um, it arms and it uh, you know supplies the answer to the, the question you know you ask, which is you know kind of what do I wish would get added? Well, there's a lot of elements. Of, of homeschooling that I hope do get added, you know, to, to the out of, you know, the out of homeschooling public and private schools, um, where we, where we kind of step back and be a bit more observant and come, I think come to a few realizations is one that young kids are learning machines, right? We know the neuroscience shows it, social observation shows that they were born to observe their environments, to learn, they naturally conduct tests, although we may never call them, you know, tests, but they conduct experiments and get to answers very rapidly. Um, and they do so in individual ways. So if we step back and learn and look at the kid, look at children as learning machines, um, we'll, we'll see, I think we'll restructure our schedule, right? And so homeschooling, I think a lot of parents do it because it provides flexibility. It's, it's because it's not at scale. It's not as rigid as the public school day has to be. You, I mean, you said it yourself, you go at eight, the buses roll in, you go, you know, to yeah, you want to do something at that. scale, you got to standardize. And if you don't standardize, the only way around that is technology in some way. Well, well I, th I think you just hit the nail on the head is we got to do it at scale. We must, um, cause we've got to, you know, have a learned society. We have to educate all our kids, but we also have to, and, and education is coming around to this. Uh, we have to recognize the individual um, different learning styles and habits and paces um, of different kids and kind of respect their own natural ability to learn um, and somehow find a way to do that at scale. And I, and I, I think you're exactly right. I think technology is a part of it. Um, it'll be uncomfortable. It'll force us to re-educate um, teachers. It'll, it'll change the way we we run our teaching colleges for sure, but, but, but I've no doubt that, that we can get there. Yeah, there's, a, I mean, you were right about coronavirus just making things happen faster because what it does is it says, hey, the complaints that you were using or the, or the reasons that you were using, now we've got other problems that are bigger than those resistances. And so you imagine like the, well, we can't do lessons online because not everybody has access to Wi-Fi. Well, when all of a sudden no one can go to school, now the people that don't have access to Wi-Fi or don't have a, a way to get on the internet, we start trying to solve that problem. And it's really just the 20% the maybe that don't have it, and then they can come on to the larger system. But I, I am, 
the teaching system in the United States seems deeply entrenched in the way that they were doing it because it's been around for so long, right? It's, it's probably the institution yeah. that's been around. The only one longer is probably the military. So making changes within the education industry is, I think, very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that'll be the theme to my, <laughs> to my career is going into deeply entrenched industries um, and, and challenging some of these norms or the way things uh, maybe I should, maybe I should, next industry I go into, I should, I should do like an entrenchment measure and maybe, uh, <laughs> go into a newer industry. But, 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 that, but that really is the common theme. You know, you're exactly right. Education is deeply entrenched in a way that, um, you know, I, I kind of always thought, but I'm only realizing until you're up close and you're just like, guys, we've got to come together and stress test all of these ideas that we hold to be so sacred because the mission, we're all aligned on the mission. No one, there, there's no political party or faction that says, ah, no one needs education. We don't need to learn basic Yeah, leave skills. those Our guys society. behind. Don't worry about them. Let's just pass on them. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, that, so that's, you find the points of agreement and then you build from there knowing that, you know, every idea or tenant that we have held should be stress test. And some of them, um, you know, may, may in fact, may in fact go away. But, but what you said about solving for, you know, the internet. So on the flip side, let's go back to the Osprey. We, a lot of us always thought, what, think of a world in which we didn't develop this technology and perhaps our enemy did, or even maybe no one did develop this, uh, you know, this hybrid aircraft, but then we would be sitting around a campfire dreaming like, man, what if we had this, you know, kind of helicopter thing that could, land here, but then fly faster, right? We would actually, the, the thing we did with, with that helicopter is we actually saved more people than, you know, than we, than we sought to try to kill or harm because what, what happens in, with battlefield industry in, injuries is you've got this thing called the magic hour. It's just the golden hour. It's the same thing as if you get in a car accident. It's why we place hospitals where we place them and we have life flight and ambulances because if you get in a traumatic in, uh, accident and you have a traumatic injury, you know, here's Pareto's principle again. It doesn't unfold slowly. We, we've got a very limited amount of time to get you first aid care. And so that's what we use uh, the Osprey for, is to say we can now get you to a trauma center much further away, much faster. And so as I, as I pull it forward to education, you know, look, look, now that we're doing remote learning, or we're forced to do remote learning, not that we chose to, look at the problems we've unsurfaced. You know, we've unsurfaced the problems that there's a lot of kids that don't have access to broadband internet. You know, so that, that's, the, that's the equivalent of basically saying you can't come to school. All the rest of you can. We're not even sending the school bus to your neighborhood. And so we're going to go and fix that, that broadband problem, and we will. We've got the infrastructure and the resources to do it. But it just makes you sit back and think, well, well why, do we, why do we even let that, that, that circumstance unfold? in the first place. It was probably someone that said, ah, we don't need broadband ever anywhere. You know, they've gotten along fine without it. Um, these are, these are the, the negative second and third order effects of when you don't take care of, of those, those kind of issues that are coming down the road. Yeah. I, I, education is such a difficult one because you think about one of the big complaints that people have, if you have a student that is excelling, but they're maybe not at the top end they're 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 just they're doing 
better than most. They're maybe at the beginning of that 20%. And they look around and say, well, we're making all of these accommodations to bring along the slower people. But what's happening to my kid that's slightly above average? He actually or she gets nothing. And so you've got all of these weights pushing against the volume of people on one side of the distribution where they don't have access. And then you've got people that are getting great advantage and they're getting propelled forward. And then you've got this big swath in the middle that like, maybe they aren't getting anything extra. Maybe they are being held back. I don't know. But when you're in the education space, it appears to me that you have all of the um, forces of that distribution pulling on one another. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, first, it's, it's, all, it's already going to be an emotionally charged debate because there's kids involved, right? And everyone wants the best for their kids, <laughs> right? Uh, as, as we should. Um, and, and as a society, I think we've got to get to the point where we want the best for all kids, right? Like, I don't, I don't, not only am I responsible for the education of, of my kids, but I'm responsible for the education of, you know, your kid once it's born and my neighbor's kid. Um, and that sounds kind of heavy and weighty, but it but it actually just makes it, it actually just makes economic and societal sense to have that belief system. But you're right, there's all these forces pulling, and for a lot of time, because education had to be done at scale, you kind of had to pick some place on that kind of curve to focus on. You know, no, do we focus on the advanced students that are running really fast? Well. Most people say, well, we can't, we can't do that because then there's 80% of people. Okay, do we focus on the middle because that's where the most, you know, you kind of get into this utilitarian philosophy. Let's do the most good for the most people. Um, and that's kind of where education has been is kind of that middle, that median, you know, plus or minus the standard deviation. And then, of course, you have, you know, the kids that seemingly are underperforming. So most of education is pointed at the middle, the, that middle part of the curve. And then, then you get the advent of like AP courses or gifted programs because we got to do something with these kids. They're, they're getting bored. Actually, they'll just cause more problems if we don't do something with them. And then, of course, you do have, you do have you know, programs for the kids, uh, probably not enough programs, some may argue, for the kids that aren't, um, that aren't you know, they're underperforming seemingly. So that is kind of the fundamental problem, I think, with the way it's structured now. Education is, again, I'm very hopeful because if it's slowly inching towards this phrase you'll keep hearing, which is individualized education or personalized, they're kind of interchangeable phrases. And a lot of states, um, their, their boards of education are getting on board with that to say, well, let's, let's kind of re let's look at, let's look at, try to look at this a different way. That, let's look at the kids that are underperforming. What we're finding is if, if you can design a curriculum meant for them, their learning styles, their ability, their current abilities, you actually will get a better outcome. And five, 10 years down the road, their performance will actually look very similar to the high achievers. They just needed a program that was, that was tailored to them again, because we know more about neuroscience and we know, we know that kids are just natural learning machines. So that's where it's going. My hope is that that COVID kind of speeds that up. I think it will. We're seeing individual, individualization everywhere else. We're seeing it with, with, uh, with Netflix, with Amazon. You know, all of our services, particularly in, in consumerism and entertainment, are already getting there, mostly because of AI 
Um, and so we just have to pull that into the classroom and into education. Yeah, and you juxtapose that against something like um, a, a term that I hear all the time, uh, what evidence-based medicine. And somebody pointed out to me that evidence-based medicine means that you're using statistics to decide what this one individual should have instead of moving towards the personalized medicine, which is not using statistics. It's trying to use some combination of knowledge that we have and how other people respond, but what is going on specifically with you. And to think about this in terms of education, where, you know, with medicine, you can just wait till the people get sick. But with education, it is this person is young, we got to do it now, we can't wait to make a decision. So I, we don't have that much time, but I am totally sold on whatever it is that you're working on. So tell us about your business. What is going on with your education program? Who, who is it right for? Who should learn more about it? Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. So, um, you know, currently today, you know, we, we've kind of met teachers and students and schools where they are, right? Which is a classroom focused environment. Um, you know, we have these four walls and we're always thinking about creating the right learning environment and learning experiences. And so we focus on the visual media uh, and visual media content in, in the form of posters. Um, and that's extremely powerful, right? Because we're processing images, things get ingrained, and repetitive, seeing these concepts over and over again really do help our students and, and their, their educational outcomes. Um, what, what, we're, what we're doing now is saying, okay, we, we've really got this niche and a specialty with visual content. We're very close to teachers. We know the curriculum. How can we take other content and other visual media that we see that our, our students and our kids really like outside of the school, right? They're on Instagram, they're on Snapchat and TikTok and other things, um, you know, slowly becoming too old to even get on. Um, but how do we take those, those, those media, those natural things that they're drawn to and really invigorate them and inspire them? And how do we then bring that in to the classroom? So we're now looking at um, digital, kind of this mix of the analog and digital, it's also a space that I'm really intrigued by because when I sit with my technology friends, they're digital, digital, digital only. But, well, well, guys, we're, we're atoms. We live in a carbon-based you know, world. There's, let, let's do atoms and electrons. And so we're going to continue to do posters, but what does it look like if a student can hold their smartphone over the poster and that poster is then animated, like augmented reality, and concepts literally start to move and come to life. Well, A, that just sounds cool as I sit with my technology friends, but, but B, we know that, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, uh, a video's worth a thousand pictures. And so we believe we can, we can give more powerful concepts and learning experiences with technology like that. I, I mean, and the list goes on and on. And so these are the things um, that we're developing and quite honestly, because of the current COVID situation, our schools are, are much more receptive to it. So um, there's 100,000 public schools, K through 12 in the U.S. There's another 30,000 private schools. They're all in our market. And, you know, we're just working our hardest to develop good products and then get the word out to them. Well, my good buddy, Travis Liebig from St. Louis Bank wrote me a couple days ago and he was like, you have to inter interview Aaron Odman. Like you, you will love it. And I was like, I don't know, education, what are you talking about? This has been a wild ride. And if I didn't have to go <laughs> right now, I would, I would stay on with you for a long time. So I hope you'll come back. I'd love to keep talking about 
the military, about what it's like to be a, a fighter pilot, what, what, is, what is it, education, how is coronavirus panning out? This was a wild conversation. I only wish I'd save more time for it. If people wanted to get a hold of you, if they wanted to learn more about your company or find you on social media, how would they do it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, A, I totally second that. This has been awesome. Travis kind of, you know, had certainly had high praise for you. And, you know, I thought we'd have a spirited conversation, which, which I've enjoyed. I'd certainly come back. Uh, you know, if you're trying to find me personally, um, I'm at Aaron Odman on Twitter and on Medium. Um, you know, writing, trying to get these ideas out. Um, our company is called PSS. Our full name is Presentation System South. So if you Google that, you'd, you'd find our website. Uh, or you can go, just go to pss.co and you'll find us and, and reach out to us. You know, we, we love to hear ideas and, you know, we live to serve educators. Well, man, this is a great conversation and uh, we'll have you back on probably in a couple of weeks. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a ton of fun. Yeah. Let's, let's stay in touch and uh, I'll, I'll be back for sure. Well, thanks for sticking around all the way to the end of the podcast. This has been a wild adventure and the last couple of weeks I've had a chance to focus just on coronavirus. Now I'm going to slow it down just a little bit and I'm going to have uh, less frequent interviews, but I want to go a deeper dive into them. So the audience that has come as a result of the coronavirus podcast has been amazing. The, the downloads have soared. The YouTube videos have uh, launched into the stratosphere. So I'm very excited about this. If you want to help the podcast out in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be rolling out some new programs. So be on the lookout for it. But in the meantime, in the next two weeks, if you really love this program, do me a favor, send an episode to one of your friends Ask them to subscribe. Let them know that this is uh, where you're getting all kinds of great content and new ideas. Help the podcast grow. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll, uh, I'll start revealing some new projects we're working on with this whole thing. So exciting times. Thank you so much. And we'll be back again soon with another interview. Ah, ah, ah.